Hello and welcome to the 5th of April 2018 edition of Worcester Talking Newspaper. I'm Pippa Curtis, editor for this recording and standing in for Charlotte Wandless. The team for this week's edition comprises Duncan Wynne as engineer, Carol Hartle as our copier, and our readers Catherine Neal, Phil Lee and Evelyn Brock. So, let's start as usual. The team are sitting around a table in the recording studio and we will be reading clockwise. For our listeners, I'm going to ask our readers to introduce themselves so you can work out where they're sitting. So, hello, this is Catherine here. Hello again from me, Phil. Greetings, I'm Evelyn. And I'm Pippa. Please do keep sending us your feedback, good and bad, The team here wants to make the recording as pleasurable as possible for you. So if you do have any comments or problems, our phone number is 01905 767 766. And uh, please be prepared for an aunt's phone possibly to take your call. As usual, we have headlines, local stories, local sport, selected radio programmes, obituaries, Thought for the day and the birthdays. If we don't have a record of your birthday and you'd like to be included, please do let us know and we can add it to the birthday file. All the items follow on and you can stop and start them using the big buttons on your player. You can also hear the recording on our website, worcestertalkingnews.org.uk, which has the magazine as well and past recordings. A quick reminder about our Talking Book Library. It is free and is being constantly updated. There's fiction, thrillers, romance, everything I think you can possibly think of. And they are available in many formats, tape, CD or USB stick. We can provide a list of books in the library in large print, hard copy, tape or USB sticks. So if you're interested, please leave a message on the answer phone. That number again, 01905 767 766, or put a note in your talking news wallet. So the main headlines this week are Thursday, 29th of March, schools evacuated after threat. Friday, 30th of March, Anna needs a new heart. Saturday, 31st of March, anger over offensive baby milk document. Monday, 2nd of April, Brave Dylan fights for his life. Tuesday, 3rd of April, Grave concerns new dog statue set in concrete to stop it being stolen again. And finally, Wednesday, 4th of April, let's change city parking. So, to give you all the information on those stories, let's start. Would you like to begin, Catherine, with your first story? Yes, so this is Thursday, March the 29th. The headline is Schools Evacuated After Threat, and there's a photograph of Red Hill Primary School in Worcester. Four schools in Worcestershire were evacuated after an email was sent out warning, pu- warning that pupils would be harmed as they left school in the afternoon. Parents were asked to pick up students early from Red Hill Primary School in Worcester, while three schools in Evesham also received the email. One, St Richard's C of E First School, was also evacuated, while parents were offered the chance to collect students from Blackminster Middle School if they were alarmed. 
The threat, described by police as not credible, was part of a wider series of emails sent to schools across the country. The email contained a threat to harm children by knocking them over or shooting them. Parents at Red Hill Primary School were asked to collect their children at 1.30 and told this was due to a security issue, although parents were not given any further details. Pepperworth Primary School near Evesham also received the email. A spokesman for West Mercia Police said police received a number of reports of malicious hoax communications made to educational establishments and schools in the West Mercia policing area. Investigations are ongoing, and at this stage we do not believe there to be a credible threat. We take hoaxes extremely seriously. They divert limited police resources and cause disruption and alarm to the public. The email sent to schools read, You have a choice here. You can ignore this email and risk the lives of the students you say you care for, or you can listen to what we're telling you. The only way out is to go out with a bang. A car will drive into as many students as possible as they try to leave. If you try and evacuate, then the driver will get out and shoot any student leaving. On our Facebook page, parents praised staff at Red Hill Primary. Kerry MacDonald said, Red Hill did an amazing job at getting the kids out. Stress-free and my children are none the wiser to the situation. Red Hill Primary's head teacher, Spencer Morris, declined to comment. This is the second time that schools have been targeted with a threatening email. Just over a week ago, a similar malicious email was sent to 400 schools in the country. On that occasion, Newbridge Short Stay School in Midland Road and Nunnery Wood Primary School in Presswich Avenue were targeted. Anyone with information about the emails or any of the other incidents should call police on 101. Alternatively, information can be provided anonymously to the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 or via org. The headline for Friday, March the 30th, reads, Anna needs a new heart, and it's set over a picture of Anna with her hockey gear on, and why she's got her hockey gear on we'll find out shortly. A brave 13-year-old girl needs a life-saving heart transplant after she was diagnosed with a rare condition after collapsing at school. Aspiring hockey player Anna Hadley from Worcester had just been picked to play for the county when she collapsed during a PE lesson at Nunnery Wood High School last November. She was diagnosed with restrictive cardiomyopathy and long QT syndrome. Until her transplant, she could not undertake any strenuous competitive sport. My new hockey heart will save my life and allow me to play hockey again, said Anna. I can't wait for that day to happen, but it also makes me sad to think that another person will lose their life in order to save mine. With her hockey dreams on hold, the plucky teen is now taking part in the Worcester Hearty Walk as part of her mission to raise money for the British Heart Foundation. With the run to take place on April 15th, Anna has already exceeded her original sponsorship target of £100, with well over £1,300 pledged so far. Dad and Andy Hadley said Anna will eventually need a heart transplant, but she is an incredibly positive girl. This is a tremendous start to her goal of helping to raise funds for the BHF and to raise awareness of heart disease in children and the donor registration system. He said she's not on a transplant, 
plant waiting list yet because it's fairly early days, but we know that it will happen. The only option she has to, expect to extend her life is a transplant. After her collapse at the end of last year, Anna underwent a series of tests at Birmingham Children's Hospital and then at Great Ormond Street in London. Any form of exercise that puts strain on her heart is currently out of the question, a cruel blow for someone who has been playing hockey since she was five and had just been selected for Worcestershire Junior Academy Centre. But the under-13 Worcester Hockey Club squad member has seen donations flood in from as far away as Australia and the USA. What's more, GB international hockey players Zoe Shipperley and Shona McCallin, who have coached Anna in the past, also lent their support, and within hours her total had reached nearly £800. As well as mum and dad, Amanda and Andy, and her 17-year-old sister Molly, Anna is encouraging as many people as possible to join in the Worcester Hearty Walk. Mr Hadley went on to say that he'd heard about the Hearty Walk and suggested Anna take part. Her heart doesn't pump blood around her body at a quick enough rate, he said. She gets tight-chested and light-headed when she does too much. He continued, the recovery period after a heart transplant is six months, and after that, she goes back to a normal active life. She can climb mountains, swim oceans, and play hockey. Anna will no longer have the symptoms of her condition after the transplant, but will have to continue taking medication, and there are always risks of her body rejecting the new heart. Mr Hadley said his daughter plans to fundraise for a number of charities that have helped her, including the two hospitals, until her condition deteriorates too far. Online registration for the walk, with a link to the sponsorship page, is now open at bhf.org.uk forward slash Worcester Hearty Walk, all one word, or you can call 0300 330 3322 for a registration form or you can register on the day. The walk starts at Foley's Cafe at Worcester County Cricket Ground, New Road, Worcester, between 10am and 10.30, and the check-in desk opens from 9.15. Walkers can choose either a three- or six-mile circular route on flat, gravelled paths suitable for buggies and wheelchairs and dogs, and there are prizes for the best wear-something-red costumes. Visit justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Anna's hyphen hockey hyphen heart to sponsor Anna. Now the headline from Saturday, March the 31st. Anger over, quotes offensive, close quotes, baby milk document. Mothers are in uproar after the county's hospital trust referred to mums who use formula milk as artificially feeding babies. The NHS group behind Worcestershire Royal Hospital plans to stop providing free milk powder at the city's maternity clinic from Tuesday, May the 1st. Shiani Driver, head of Worcestershire Mums Network, thinks the move is designed to boost breastfeeding rates and make savings. She said, the document is terrible. It's the term artificially feed and how it's quite sanctimoniously worded. A lot of mums find the term artificially feed offensive. Artificial feeding sounds as if it's not as good. It's the way it's been put across that it's almost a punishment for not trying to breastfeed. I don't think they should be made to feel bottle fed is not as good or a bad thing. It's causing more division between mums. It's disempowering. 
Nobody is arguing with the need to help improve breastfeeding rates or the fact that we are being asked to provide our own formula. That's not the issue. The issue is the wording of the poster, which could be really upsetting for mums at a very vulnerable and emotional time of their lives. I'm a massive advocate of breastfeeding, but I really suspect any, respect anyone who chooses not to or can't <clears throat> breastfeed. Mrs Driver added that there are a number of conditions, such as mastitis or ductal thrush, which might force mothers to bottle feed with formula. She said, it can all really hurt. I've had all of that. I know lots of mums struggle. I've had mums in tears about the fact that they can't breastfeed. The document announcing the changes was posted on Worcestershire Antenatal Facebook page on Tuesday and has been shared over 600 times. It stated that mothers who wished to artificially feed their baby need to bring a formula starter pack to hospital. Rachel Wright said on the Worcester News Facebook page, It's the way the document was worded that people have an issue with, regardless of whether mums breast or bottle feed. No feed is artificial. It still does the same job and no new mum should be ever be made to feel guilty. Loretta Smith added, It's the wording that is the problem. Why all of a sudden is it being called artificial when it has always been called formula? It makes mums feel bad for using it. I don't think they have a problem taking their own. Some women can't breastfeed and some don't want to. It doesn't suit everyone. But Worcester resident Claire Bullman said, I totally agree with the change. Why shouldn't mums pay for their own formula? It's expensive and a totally unnecessary strain on an already overstretched NHS. They have stated they will provide if it's medically required. They will not let a baby starve. Alison Hodges said, I am neither for or against breastfeeding or formula feeding. What each parent chooses to do is their choice, but the NHS should not be expected to pay for it. You don't expect them to clothe your baby. A, a spokesman for Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust said, This decision fully supports our commitment to promoting breastfeeding in line with UNICEF Baby Friendly Initiative. We recognise that some new mums may not want to breastfeed and that some new babies may need to have their feed supplemented, which we fully support. From May the 1st, the Trust will no longer routinely be providing formula milk to new mothers who have made an informed choice not to breastfeed. And the headline for Monday, April the 2nd, Brave Dylan Fights for His Life. A brave three-year-old boy is fighting for his life because of a hereditary blood cancer which he may get again in adulthood. Dylan Rashed from Tolodyne, Worcester, has been diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma after his father's sister died from the disease aged 11. The disease is a soft tissue tumour in his testicle and it is life-threatening. His aunt, Zoe Rera, said... It was devastating news to find out. We've had to take a step back from things, as Dylan obviously comes first. He was a very active boy, liked going to the park and doing activities, but he has a lot less energy to do things now. Because he started chemo so early, he has a good chance of survival. 
but without being able to put a percentage on it, it is more than likely he will get it again as an adult. Dylan was diagnosed with the disease in December after an infection was found and one of his testicles had grown bigger than the other. Now his family wants to do their bit to help raise funds for Birmingham Children's Hospital, where Dylan is cared for. On Sunday, May the 6th, there will be a fun day, raising money for the hospital, and it will also go towards a holiday to Disneyland in Paris. It will take place at the Virgin Tavern, and will include donut vans, a barbecue and a raffle. Prizes, including a football signed by a Liverpool football club, hair vouchers, nail vouchers and jewellery are available. The event will start at noon and finish at around 6pm. On Saturday, May the 5th, there will be a sponsored walk from the Virgin Tavern at 10.30am for eight miles around Worcester. And there will also be a disco at the Virgin Tavern that evening. Recently, a group of three boys who are friends of Dylan took on a 36-hour gaming session for Dylan to raise funds. The family would still like prizes for the raffle for the fun day. To donate money or help, call Zoe Rera on 07857-519-420. And and this is the headline for Tuesday, April the 3rd. It's Grave Concerns. Uh, New dog statue set in concrete to stop it being stolen again. The statue of a Yorkshire Terrier has taken pride of place on the grave from which the original was stolen by a despicable cemetery thief, but the family has been forced to set the memento in concrete as a precaution. The replacement statue was laid on the grave of Neville Cook, from which it was stolen by graveyard thief Alice Wyatt, who was branded despicable by magistrates. Neville's heartbroken family has been forced to go to extraordinary lengths to stop the new statue being stolen again, mounting it on an 8-inch by 8-inch concrete block which they have buried in the ground. The theft of the statue, engraved with Neville's name, caused heartbreak for Mr Cook's widow and sons because it had lain on the grave in Astwood Cemetery in Worcester since he was buried there there following his death on October 20th, 2007 and was of deep sentimental value. The family waited until after Wyatt was sentenced before replacing the statue and although it does not have the same sentimental value as the one that was stolen, the statue will provide a focus for remembering Neville Cook. Craig Cook, aged 39, one of Neville's sons, said, At the cemetery you should be able to put what you like on a grave and it should stay there. I'm glad this person has been caught and everyone knows who she is now. I don't want other people to go through what my family have gone through. The family kept Yorkshire Terriers, so the item was of particular sentimental value. It was taken on Tuesday, October 10th last year, and Wyatt later told police she had smashed it. Wyatt received a 12-month community order at Worcester Magistrates Court earlier this month for stealing mementos from three graves, including that of Mr Cook. Mr. Cook suffered from muscular dystrophy and died at the age of 73 after battling cancer and other health problems. The lorry driver and mechanic, who had six sons and a daughter, 
died on October the 20th, 2007, and the family still light a candle for him every day and keep his grave well maintained. We're now on to Wednesday, April the 4th, and the headline is Let's Change City Parking. And we've got a picture of one of our councillors, Councillor Denham, with a City Council parking scratch card in Fourgate Street with the railway bridge behind him. A councillor has unveiled plans to set up a resident parking zone in the city centre, complete with scratch cards for outsiders. County Councillor Paul Denham wants to introduce permits for residents who live within three quarters of a mile of the city centre. Under his scheme, visitors and commuters would have to buy scratch card type permits from news agents in order to park in these roads. He has, however, yet to propose his idea to the city or to the county council. Councillor Denham believes the project would free up streets so residents can park near their homes. He said, it's time to put residents before visitors when it comes to parking. The most important thing is to prevent people who drive in and park all day clogging up residential streets. Residents come home and can't find anywhere to park near to where they live. Allowing non-residents to park in these spaces makes life pretty appalling for residents. I would sell parking scratch card type permits through corner shops or news agents. You scratch off the time and date of your arrival and you are allowed to park for a limited amount of time. Councillor Denham criticised the current piecemeal approach to parking schemes in the city which usually cover just a few roads. He said his wider proposal would stop a move-on effect where people park in neighbouring streets not covered by parking schemes. The councillor envisions that the City Council will thrash out the details of his proposed parking zone and then submit the project to the County Council, which can incorporate it into the Local Transport Plan 4. He said the closest example of a similar scheme can be found in Beverley in Yorkshire. He added, they have zoned the whole inner area of the town and designated the whole lot as a residence only, without payment. He said the town uses parking meters instead of scratch cards, but he prefers the latter option, as he argues that meters are expensive to maintain. Councillor Denham added that a successful scratch card system is already in place in Worcester's Britannia Square. His parking plan would encompass the whole of the city centre on the east side of the river, including the Arboretum, Wilds Lane and Rainbow Hill. Responding to Councillor Denham's idea, Phoebe Dawson, manager of Worcester Business Improvement District, said, We are confident that visitors and shoppers are aware of the many car parks dotted across the city. These are well signposted. She added that Worcester Business Improvement District businesses can claim discounted parking rates. So there you have all the headline stories and now we'll move on to a selection of other stories that are featured in this week's news. So carrying on as we are, can you take over Evelyn for the next story please? Right, this is a story headlined Teenager Groomed Three Underage Girls and I think it's quite interesting um, with the details of the judgment in this case and also how the outcome is managed. A teenager groomed three underage girls on Facebook, sending them indecent videos of himself and getting one to send him a topless photo. George King, 19, of Shoal Green, Droitwich, was a youth himself when he carried out the offences over social media. He admitted four counts of inciting a child to engage in sexual activity when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court on Friday. 
Stephen Bailey, prosecuting, said King connected with one of the girls through Facebook, asking her to send him a topless photograph of herself. She did so, and he sent her a video of himself naked via Snapchat. When this girl informed police, she alerted them to another girl who had a similar experience. <clears throat> Mr Bailey said, He seems to have made the running, suggesting various sexual activity to them. They responded, saying they were willing to participate. There's a degree of grooming behaviour. It was only after his arrest that a third complainant was identified. King had no previous convictions or cautions. Curtis Myrie for King said, He has accepted his guilt. He was a young offender at the time. Clearly he's not anymore. He isn't someone who would be considered to be a risk. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said, This type of communication between teenagers that includes communication with children under 16 and including sexualised conversation and exchange of indecent images seems to be ever more common given the increasing frequency with which such acts appear in the media. Judge Cartwright took into account that King was a youth at all times of the offences aged between 15 and 17 years. He had committed the offences against girls approximately two years younger than him. He said that King was a diligent young man who had attempted to better himself and said there was no great disparity in age between himself and the girls. You were showing off in the assessment of the probation officer with boasts and exchanges that, in your mind, was, were designed to better or trump the exchanges coming the other way, he said. However, the judge said King had crossed a significant boundary because the girls were under 16 and that he had brought significant shame and embarrassment on himself. However, the judge said King was not a sexual predator and that he had been horrified by the consequences of his behaviour. The judge did not deem King suitable for a programme requirement because it would mean he would mix with offenders with a worse outlook than him. He ordered him to pay £300 in compensation to each of the three complainants. King was also fined £200 for each offence and ordered to pay costs of £535, taking the total he owes to £2,235. The judge prioritised compensation to the complainants over all other payments. King agreed to pay the compensation in full immediately and a payment plan was drawn up for the rest of the money. A victim surcharge will be calculated administratively. A five-year restraining order will prevent King having contact with the complainants or going within a hundred metres of anywhere he believes them to be present. And here's a story about the lack of a post office in St John's. A city councillor is calling for a new post office in a neighbourhood that has been without a branch for over six months. Councillor Richard Dudal said some residents in Dines Green are currently forced to walk over a mile into St John's to access post office services. The post office said it was working hard to restore services in Dines Green following the closure of its branch in Gresham Road, Worcester. Lynn Burgess, a senior support worker at Dines Green's, Dines Green's Constable House, 
a care home for adults with complex needs, said residents at the centre now have to be taken to the post office. They could probably go by themselves to Dines Green. They use the post office for stamps, posting things and postal orders. I live in St John's and used the Dines Green branch as the parking in St John's is terrible. I would go there on the way to work. Councillor Udall added, It is simply not good enough. I just want the service, in some form, to return to Dines Green, even if it is for reduced hours. The post office is, for many people, an essential public service. A large area of Worcester, like Dines Green, needs one. Some residents use it daily and have struggled to get all the way into St John's in order to use the nearest alternative. A spokesman for the post office said, We sincerely apologise to customers for any inconvenience caused by the temporary closure of Dines Green's post office. We understand and appreciate how much communities rely on our services. Uh, and this is a story uh, with the headline, Raid Reveals Drugs Farm. There's a photograph here of a very lush-looking um, sort of greenhouse with a lot of um, plants, which are a curious shade of yellow, which might be the lighting, I think, and an inset photograph of police fun outside a, um, a suburban house. Two people were arrested as police raided three cannabis farms in Droitwich this morning. Police smashed down the doors of homes in Dovecot Road and Y Close in Droitwich at around 9.20 as part of a planned operation and a further house in Ombersley Road was raided after information was uncovered at Y Close. Officers found almost 60 plants at the house in Dovecot Road as part of a professional cannabis growing setup, many of which were close to harvest. After smashing down part of the front door at the house, officers found all the makings of a cannabis farm, including large ventilation pipes that stretched up the stairs and into the loft, water pipes and dozens of lamps. Every room on the first floor of the house had cannabis plants growing within them. While nobody was present at the house in Dovecot Road when police raided, a large flat-screen TV, a PlayStation, dozens of Blu-ray DVDs and clothes in the living room showed somebody had been present there. Every window at the house had been completely covered with net curtains. Police were made aware of suspicious activity at the two houses and believe the cannabis farms in Droitwich are just a small piece of a wider drug network jigsaw. Inspector Gareth Morgan said, If you're involved in drug supply or cultivation, we will catch up with you and will take positive action. I also appeal to the community to be vigilant of this activity and to report anything suspicious to their local policing team. Call 101 or via Crime Stoppers. Two people were arrested at the house in Y Close. People also believe the two houses in Droitwich, which were part of the planned raid, have ties to drug gangs in Manchester. The equipment used to grow cannabis in the houses will be dismantled and the cannabis will be destroyed. A very different farming story now from Saturday, March 31st, and the headline is Vineyard Scoops Awards Hattrick. We've got a wonderful picture of a vineyard sitting across the Severn Valley there with a rather large-looking bottle of something cool and bubbly. A small Worcestershire vineyard, one of the oldest in England and one of the most northerly in the world, has scored a hat-trick of prestigious awards. 
Astley Vineyard on the banks of the River Severn, 10 miles north of Worcester between Shrawley and Stourport, scooped a trio of honours in the recently announced Independent English Wine Awards 2018. It gained a gold, silver and a bronze from the judges in this year's contest. The gold was awarded for its vintage sparkling Kerner 2014, made from grapes related to Riesling. A silver for its Bacchus 2016 and a bronze for its old vine Kerner 2015, a wine which was also included in the UK's Best 100 Wines list in the Daily Mail last weekend. The competition organisers said that to have three wines awarded medals from a single small producer was remarkable. Asti Vineyard has been producing a range of sheltered, uh, sorry, a range of single estate wines from its sheltered five-acre valley, uh, valley site in the lush Seven Valley for over 40 years, making it one of the oldest in the country. The owners describe it as a small boutique producer where quality takes precedence over quantity. A delighted owner, Tim Hayward, said, Astley Vineyard is blessed with great soil, a sheltered position in the Severn Valley, and some vines that are over 40 years old. It is a privilege to care for such a gem. We undoubtedly benefit hugely from the passion, hard work and vision of the two previous owners. The wine awards are intended to advise the consumer as well as celebrate the work of the, vi- of the winemaker and the panel of carefully selected judges comprised a group of professionally diverse people and those with a high level of consumer insight. They know about wine and they know about people. So the judges consist of winemakers, masters of wine, sommelier, buyers, merchants, journalists, educators and expert customers. Apart from knowing the great variety in the vintage, judging is done blind and carried out in panels of four people with wine tasted by category and assessed on its merits. Asti Vineyard was established in 1971 by the Bacchus family who were visionaries by planting grape varieties such as Bacchus decades before its potential was fully realised. Many of the original vines are still there, providing great maturity. In 1993, Jonty Daniels and Janet Baldwin acquired the vineyard. English wines were yet to capture much of the English market, but the couple put their life and soul into the estate, establishing its reputation for low yields and quality wines. The vineyard went from strength to strength, earning national and international awards throughout its 24 years. When Jonty retired, the five members of the Hayward family took over, determined to carry on putting love and passion into the little Worcestershire vineyard. They are currently building they are currently building new visitor facilities and a winery. Their grapes are currently processed at Three Choirs Vineyard in Gloucestershire. Now an article from Saturday, March the thirty first, headed Drug Dealer Faces Prison. A drug dealer who supplied heroin and crack cocaine on the streets of Worcester has been warned by a judge that he is almost bound to go to prison. Volkan Kurt appeared at Worcester Crown Court on Monday, where he admitted possession of heroin, Class A, with intent to supply, possession of crack cocaine, Class A, with intent to supply, and possession of of criminal property. The 21-year-old of Mornington Close, London, was arrested in Deansway, Worcester, on March 6th as part of Operation Blade, a police initiative to cut the supply of drugs into the county from larger sites. 
Kurt had already admitted obstructing a constable in the execution of their duties and possession of cannabis resin when he appeared at Kidderminster Magistrate's <coughs> Court on March the 8th. He was arraigned on the more serious drugs offences when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court. Joe Uthwaite, defending, said Kurt was a young man with no previous convictions but had been cautioned on to, in 2016 for common assault. She said he had taken out a loan and had been unable to pay it back and had been given the option of working to pay off the debt. He has been described as dealing in Class A drugs as a way of paying off that debt, she said. A pre-sentence report will be prepared by the probation service before the sentencing hearing. Paul Whitfield, prosecuting, said there was as yet no evidence on the digital system confirming the quantity of the drugs found. Judge Robert Jukes, QC, said he needed more evidence about the quantity, purity and value of the drugs before he passed sentence. Addressing the defendant, he said, You have had the good sense to plead guilty and you will get credit for that. You have to understand that a prison sentence is almost bound to follow unless there's something wholly exceptional. The report may be relevant about how long that has to be. The judge adjourned the case until Friday, April the 6th. And this is an article which actually, thinking about it, I'm probably not the best person to read because it's about technology and I have to say I read it and some of it went over my head, but um, I'll, I'll read it out because it's interesting. A 5G internet tower is set to be built on a science park in order to test the pioneering technology. More than Hills Science Park off Geraldine Road has applied for permission to install a 26-metre tower on its land. The Department of Culture, Media and Sport chose Malvern Science Park as one of six 5G trial projects in the UK. Alan White, Chief Executive of Malvern Science Park, said, These are very exciting times. We're leading the charge. Companies are coming to Malvern Science Park to test the application of 5G. 5G is a very different project to 4G. It's a paradigm shift. We'll be able to get a lot more data. At the moment, it's at a very early stage of understanding how that network can work. It will lead to the Internet of Things becoming a reality. We'll be able to do many things remotely that we currently can't do because of the network capacity. The Internet of Things is a scenario where a range of objects are connected to an online network. Mr. White envisioned that people will be able to receive alerts when their fridge door is left open or when their doorbell rings. Mark Stansfield, chair of Worcestershire Local Enterprise Partnership, WLEP, previously said, 5G connectivity is set to revolutionise the way that future businesses will operate both in the UK and globally. Kinetic, the defence technology company, will use the network to test advanced cyber security applications. The proposed tower is just one part of the 5G project, with other high-tech equipment also being installed at the park. The bottom of the tower will be surrounded by a steel mesh wire fence with barbed wire on top. Morven Hill Science Park 5G network will only be accessible to the consortium behind the project, which is led by WLEP. The Worcestershire 5G Consortium comprises Worcestershire County Council, 5GIC at the University of Surrey, 
AWTG, Huai, O2, BT, Worcester Bosch, and Yamazaki Matzak. There you go. That's well, the future. <laughs> this story is a little different. Uh, it was published on Friday, March the 30th, which of course is Good Friday, and the headline is Pet Shop Bans Sale of Rabbits. Uh, pet, shop, pet store Pets at Home will stop selling rabbits over Easter. More than 440 stores will ban the sale and adoption of rabbits between Good Friday and Easter Monday. Each year, customer interest in rabbits increases at this time due to their association with the Easter Bunny. Instead, to ensure families understand the needs of owning a rabbit, Pets at Home will be holding free workshops in all its stores over the Easter holidays. The My Pet Pals Easter Activity Club will be held until April the 15th at Pets at Home stores, including Worcester. Store members will be on hand to share their knowledge, quizzing the children on pet care and the welfare needs of small furry animals, including rabbits. This will include learning about the importance of shelter, food and water, good health, appropriate company and the right living environment. Henry Howells, store manager at Pets at Home Worcester, said, Our decision to stop the sale and adoption of rabbits during Easter has been made to educate potential owners on the importance of responsible pet ownership. Our informative workshops will help families understand what's involved in being a responsible pet owner. What's more, they're also a fun and free way to learn about small fairy animals and rabbits during the holidays. All Pets at Home colleagues are now City and Guild endorsed, which provides them with the skills and knowledge on the major principles and practices of animal care and welfare. The company have been ranked 7 out of 100 retailers in the 2015 WHICH customer service ratings. Pets at Home has also shared a list of considerations for prospective rabbit owners, and these can be viewed on our website, worcesternews.co.uk. And now from Saturday, March the 31st, crowdfunding to ease families' medical debts. A couple who were struggling with debts of nearly £60,000, having supported their terminally ill daughter for the last eight years, are hoping to raise thousands through crowdfunding. Geoffrey Parry, who lived in Droitwich and studied electrics in Worcester before moving to Montreal, Canada, said funding for daughter Jessica's treatment has put us in a mess financially. So far, the GoFundMe campaign, titled Help Us Keep Our Home, has raised 1260 of its $40,000 target, and Mr Parry, who was once homeless, fears the family could eventually end up on the streets. Jessica has spinal muscular atrophy type 1, he said. Her life expectancy was to leave us before her second birthday, but we're so happy that that didn't happen. With non-invasive care and new technology opening up her world, we feel we have time to look to a future, something we never hoped to have with Jessica. She can speak and move her finger a tiny bit, he added. However, Mr Parry said his wife, Eva de Blois, has just been declared bankrupt, and even that is not near enough to cover their losses. The house is in my name, he said, so safe for the immediate time, but we are struggling with over $80,000 credit debt and sinking fast. If we can raise even a fraction of that, it will give us time the time we need to dig slowly back out and not drown in interest and minimum payments. 
Mr. Parry said he and his wife rarely reach out for health help, though are truly grateful for the donations received from various sources over the last eight years. The family have started, make, started their own business making decorated biscuits called Jessica's Treats on Facebook, which Mrs. Parry runs. Mr. Parry, who is Jessica's full-time carer, said his daughter often spends weeks in hospital at a time. Mrs. de Blois' 16-year-old son, Christian, also lives at the house where Mr. Parry's son, Joshua, lives, or with his mum. If we can't find a way out of this, we can easily slip towards losing the house and a safe, clean space we need for Jessica, said Mr. Parry. I have been homeless in my youth on the streets of Manchester. I think I could handle it again, but not my family, and especially not Jessica. Visit gofundme.com WFZM9. Please help us keep our home to donate. Now a story that brings the 13th century into the 21st century and shows that there's nothing new under the sun. It's headed, Treaty was forerunner to two-state solution. In a list of not a lot of people know that, it would probably come fairly high up. Well, have you ever heard of the Treaty of Worcester, 1218? Yet the document, which celebrates its 800th anniversary this year, is being championed as a blueprint for solving issues between warring neighbours in the 21st century, the forerunner of the modern two-state solution. Local historian and retired lawyer David Hallmark explained... The Treaty of Worcester deserves remembering for its attempt to prevent warfare between England and Wales as neighbouring states who should be acting in harmony, in strategic alliance and not in constant harassment. Contemporary separatist movements to continue today and through studying the treaty, the lessons of history can be learned. The reason Worcester was chosen as the place for a peace meeting was most likely because at one time it was on the front line. According to ancient maps, the boundary of what we now know as Wales came down to the River Severn. Mr Hallmark added that in modern times the world has been riven by conflict between neighbours. Catalans and the Kurds and the Palestinians all have their own ambitions as Tibetans and Biafrans and Ukrainians have sought their own independence and there are many other examples. Separatist movements are part of our daily news. The lesson of the Treaty of Worcester 1218 is the lesson of good intentions. Is it possible to engage in dialogue and to work towards a peaceful solution with mutual respect for the separate territory and development of the neighbour? The intent of the treaty was to stabilise relations between England and Wales and it was signed on the second Sunday after the day on Ash Wednesday. In invita an invitation signed for the English Council of Ambassadors and of William Marshall, guide and regent of the realm in Exeter, on February the 12th, 1218, was addressed to Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, and stated, in health and love, the expectation of meeting at Worcester, to receive your homage and to come in safety, and to all those attending to return home safely to your country. Sadly, 
History tells us the 1218 pact didn't last long and bloody conflict was to come. The list of Anglo-Welsh wars is long until the two armies nearly came to blows but stood down at Woodbury Hill near Great Whitley in 1405. The leaders then being Owain Glendur of Wales and Henry IV of England. The final fight was at Harlech in 1409. The relationship between England and Wales has intermingled histories with many other links to Worcester. Henry Tudor of Wales became Henry VII of England in 1485 and his eldest son Arthur was buried in Worcester Cathedral in 1502. So too was King John. Mr Hallmark added, was the Treaty of Worcester 1218 ahead of its time in recognising the separation of states as separate communities only to trade together, not to live together? The two-state concept is a construct merging history and law. The history of the differences is blended into a pact for coexistence, a piece perhaps fragile and just a piece of paper becomes a bond of behaviour. If one party breaches the agreement, the bond is broken and the historic enmity revived. If the rule of law is so abused that its effect is lost, then there'll be civil war. It happened in Worcester in 1642 and finished in Worcester in 1651. American politicians Adams and Jefferson, who were later both presidents, on their visit to Worcester 1786, realised the importance of the 1651 battle and victory against tyranny. That battle and that victory remains as much part of Worcester heritage as its historic 1218 treaty, designing the two-state state solution that is so very much needed today. Gosh, I feel I've had a history lesson. That was wonderful. Uh, back to more prosaic news. Volunteers brave rain for litter pick. Residents of the village of Suckley near Malvern were not put off by biting winds, rain and snow when they vowed to emulate the famous Wombles of Wimbledon Common and clean up the local countryside. Undeterred by the inclement weather, 27 volunteers turned out for the second Suckley Womble and picked up 43 sacks of rubbish from around Suckley and Nightwick. Organiser Catherine Armstrong said, This is a sad indictment of those less thoughtful who discard their drinks cans, bottles and litter around our gorgeous countryside with no care or reason. The Suckley Wombles are indebted to the Unity Brewery and Stocks Farm who have allowed the litter pickers to start and finish on their premises with the brewery opening its doors early to allow the volunteers to get kitted up. Returning to the brewery for a pint and some hot food after the hard work was the highlight of the event. Delicious warming cuisine was donated by Diane Talbot, Catherine Owen and Catherine Armstrong, and the Wombles devoured the lot, raising £95 in the process for the St John's Ambulance. Anyone in neighbouring parishes who might like to organise a Womble can contact Cathy C2 at hotmail.co.uk, who'll help them get started. And here's a news item about the railway service. Um, and the headline is MPs call for line update. 
The Mid Worcestershire MP has voiced his support for improvements to trains on the Cotswold Line after Paddington to Worcester Foregate Street featured in a list of the top ten worst performing train services. Nigel Huddleston said there has been a significant deterioration in Great Western Railway service along the northern part of the line in recent months. I'm sad to say that my mailbag has been full of complaints about GWR's service from constituents, he said, speaking in Westminster Hall on Wednesday. Mr Huddleston said the government needs to do more to hold franchisees to account when the services they provide to British taxpayers fall short. With the Department of Transport currently consulting on the future of the GWR franchise along the line, Wednesday's debate was led by Robert Courts, MP for Whitney. Mr Huddleston said the 11.22 and 2.21 trains from Paddington to Worcester Foregate Street featured on GWR's top ten worst. This was highlighted on February the 12th when six trains were cancelled completely and six were either terminated or started at Worcester Shrub Hill instead of operating through Worcester Foregate Street, the Mulvans or Hereford. Two days later, continued the MP, another six services between Worcester and London were cancelled and two commuter services between London and Worcester did not operate for a week due to a lack of available drivers. Although GWR has acknowledged publicly and in communication with me that the service it provides has fallen short, the issue has not been addressed fast enough, he added. Mr Huddleston went on to say that the Vale Public Transport Group has claimed that, quote, there is growing evidence that businesses and leisure travellers are deserting the Cotswold line. A number of constituents have told me that they have had to abandon the train altogether and now drive into work because they cannot risk relying on the Cotswold line to serve their needs. He said a standalone franchise for the North Cotswold line should be considered, as well as a redoubling. A spokesman for GWR apologised for recent performances, putting the issue down to driver training issues, as well as train and infrastructure challenges. Some more history here. This is what Americans call an opinion piece. It's by John Philpott. It's set under a rather pleasant line drawing of the ruins of the Chapter House, much Wenlock Abbey, quite why we'll discover in a mo. Real truth you're not being told, dot, dot, dot. No one told us what we were voting for. This has long been the whining reproach of Ramonas, the people who seem to approve of democracy only when it goes their way. Mind you, on one level, they are absolutely correct in this analysis of the 2016 referendum, tedious though their spoiled, spoiled brat squawkings may be. Come to think of it, here are some other examples of no one told us. No one told us that voting Labour a second time would lead to an illegal genocidal war in Iraq. Neither did anyone tell us that Blair's successor, Gordon Brown, would raid, raid occupational pension dividends at the stroke of a pen condemning thousands of private sector workers to an impoverished retirement. Yes, no one told us. And, come to think of it, no one told us, let alone tipped us the wink, about the expansion of the private finance initiative, the so-called PFI strategy, an idiotic manoeuvre that has directly led to the perpetual crisis in the National Health Service. Let's go even further back with this no one told us mantra. 
I dare say that when knights, archers and men-at-arms flocked to the standard of Henry Tudor in 1485, no one told them that his son, another Henry, would one day destroy the monasteries, thereby triggering the Reformation, an act that would divide England and set Catholic against Protestant for centuries to come. No one told us. And talking of 16th century break with Rome, does this not have parallels with the present-day break with Europe? Because once England had broken the shackles of Rome, this country would go on to become a land of merchant adventurers, courageous men who set in motion events that would ultimately make us the greatest nation the world had ever seen. But no one told them either, did they? One of the major problems we are faced with today is that these aspects of our history seem to have either been forgotten or deliberately omitted from school syllabuses by academics who seek to deny the past for ideological reasons. Young people are taught that there can be no future outside a European superbloc, that this country's very survival relies on being chained to a profoundly undemocratic conglomeration of disparate states with nothing in common other than shared humanity. But this is a lie, because Britain can indeed have a wonderful future outside this latter-day empire, while remaining on friendly terms with our neighbours across the Channel. And that's the real case of No One Told Us. Now another train story, but in these days of doom and gloom and closures, this one is far more uplifting. Its headline, Trains Make Their Return. Trains have returned to Broadway after a gap of more than 58 years. The station, which reopens tomorrow, saw a number of special trains return to the Cotswold village. Nearly 2,000 volunteers and shareholders enjoyed a trip on the newly laid line to admire the brand new station built by volunteers and paid for by shareholders. Richard Johnson, the voluntary chairman of GWSR PLC, said, This was the pinnacle of achievement for everyone who has played a part in making the dream of reaching Broadway again a reality. These two days have been a way to enjoy the fruits of all this hard work and being among the first to travel by train to Broadway after a gap of more than 58 years. Connecting Broadway with Cheltenham by rail again was the vision of those early pioneers who first took over a derelict Toddington station in 1982. That was three years after British Railways had lifted the track and removed the infrastructure of the main line that once ran between Stratford-upon-Avon and Cheltenham. Broadway station, along with most other stations on the line, had closed way back in March 1960. Embankments and bridges have been repaired, drainage fixed, new track laid and a brand new station built on the site of the original, all by volunteers. Now we have a railway that is nearly 15 miles long between Broadway and Cheltenham and it opens to the public on Good Friday. On Good Friday, Lord Richard Faulkner of Worcester will formally open the station and travel on the footplate of Great Western Railway designed engine number 7903 Formark Hall as it departs at 9.40am with the first public train to Cheltenham for 58 years. Well, that concludes the general news items from the papers, so we're now going to move on to sport. I have to say that this week it seemed a bit thin, um, but I shall start with a story about 
Jocelyn, who's going to be the North Mids head coach. Steve Jocelyn has been appointed the new head coach of the North Midlands senior side for this season's Bill Beaumont County Championship campaign. We're talking rugby union, I should have said that. Jocelyn is an RFU Level 3 qualified coach of Worcestershire and Herefordshire and responsible for community rugby at Worcester Warriors. He fills the gap left by former Lucktonians director of rugby, Alex Davidson, who stepped down as North Midlands head coach just before the start of last season's county championship. Jocelyn, who was appointed after a rigorous recruitment and interview process, has 25 years of coaching experience around the world, including the Trinidad and Tobago national side, Munster women and Stratford. We're delighted that Steve has agreed to take on the challenge of the North Midlands senior squad and we looked forward to this season's campaign, said the region's coaching coordinator, Ian Strangeward. Other appointments to the North Mids coaching team will be confirmed before the opening county championship match against Hampshire at Gosport and Fareham on May the 5th. They host Warwickshire at Bromsgrove on May the 12th and then travel to Taunton to face Somerset on May the 19th. And here's an item giving us some news about Worcester City Football Ground. Um, Worcester City have announced an extended ground share arrangement at Bromsgrove Sporting. As reported in Wednesday's Worcester News, City will spend next season at the Victoria Ground with the option for another year on top. A club statement said... The Board of Directors of Worcester City and Bromsgrove Sporting are pleased to announce that after amicable negotiations, an agreement has been reached for Worcester City to ground share with Bromsgrove Sporting for next season with an option for a further year, if so required. Worcester are of the opinion that this arrangement has been a success and that under the circumstances remains the best option for both first-team football and their fans in terms of playing surface, overall facilities and matchday experience, and are grateful to Bromsgrove for their continued support. Bromsgrove are also pleased with the arrangement and are looking forward to hosting their Worcestershire rivals for another season. City have now applied for entry into the FA Cup, FA Vars and FA Youth Cup for next season. Intriguing headline here, City Poised for Competitive Hugby Match. Yes, Hugby, H-U-G-B-Y. Hugby, it says, rugby for the visually impaired has started in Worcester. Warriors Community Foundation, Worcester Valkyries and City Councillor Richard Udall are backing the sessions. The game is designed for people with all kinds of sight loss or even for those with none at all. Teams of all ages and abilities are mixed with Udall joining in with a local team. He said, it's great fun, and we have many people from all walks of life joining in. As a sighted player, it's my role to be the eyes of those without any sight. Totally blind players have been liberated by this sport. It's wonderful to witness people having so much fun and getting fit. The group, drawing members from across Worcestershire and Herefordshire, meet every Tuesday at Six Ways and train for free from 6 until 7pm. They have often been joined by two players and the head coach from Valkyries, Roy Davis, who have all been inspired by the sport. The team will play Valkyries in the first competitive game of rugby in Worcester at Six Ways in May. The women's side will wear sim glasses to give their opponents a fair chance. Udall sponsors Valkyries, who help to train various community groups. He added, so far the sponsorship has supported many events in St John's and Dines Green and I hope more will follow. 
It's really great to witness visually impaired residents, some who have wanted to play rugby for a lifetime and have been prevented by their sight loss, now taking up the sport. I am confident of our future success. One day, I hope rugby can be rewarded by becoming a Paralympic sport. It builds confidence and encourages physical activity. I am really proud to be a member of the team and can safely say that no visual impairment holds anyone back. We all play an equal part. And now a short article about cricket, but this time about the management of, of cricket rather than the actual team members. County Chairman hails new directors. Worcestershire Chairman Stephen Taylor has described new board directors Gordon Lord and Richard Law as a great fit for the club going forward. Former county opener Lord was elected by members at the annual meeting to serve as a replacement for Neil Radford along with businessman Law. Lord spent a decade as a professional cricketer before spearheading a coaching revolution during a 25-year spell with England and Wales Cricket Board. He's now the England Rugby Football Union's Head of Professional Coach Development after being appointed early in 2017. Law was a senior partner of property consultants and chartered surveyors Bruton Knowles. He took the firm from a traditional rural Gloucester-based entity to a national practice providing services to the private, corporate and public sector. He has extensive knowledge of public sector procurement and providing estate management and valuation services, including property and performance audits to councils and police authorities. Taylor said, members have voted Gordon and Richard onto the Worcestershire board as directors and it's great to have people of this standing. These guys are a perfect fit for the requirements of the current board going forward and also both have Worcestershire CCC at heart. Many of the members will remember Gordon as an accomplished opening batsman, but since then he has developed great skills in coaching and been at the forefront of that area in the ECB. Now his talents have been recognised by the RFU as well. Richard has tremendous business acumen and is an expert in many sorts of fields and his knowledge can only be of benefit to the club. We are delighted that members have given their approval to Gordon and Richard joining the board and they will be great assets to the county. A very short article here about cycling, which doesn't feature that often. Mark Corbett won among a strong turnout of 31 riders for the first Worcester St John's Cycling Club time trial of the season. The contest was held on the five-mile course, starting from the top of Madge Hill, near Sevenstoke. Corbett clocked 11 minutes 49 seconds, with Ed Dursley and Rob Nichols tied for second with 12.09. Sam Clark took the woman's top spot in 14.13, while Harry Tate was one of the fastest under 18 in 13.06. Previously, an open time trial at Sevenstoke, organised by VC Surveil, had been the first time trial of 2018 for most Worcester St John's riders. Paul Guest was the best-placed club rider, with 11th position in 23.02. And here's some good news for a young boy about f who's getting very good at fencing. Young Worcester fencer Joseph Kington won gold medals at two regional competitions. 
he spectacularly improved on his 2017 seventh place by winning the boys under 10s division at the British Youth West Midlands foil competition at Royal Grammar School Worcester. Kington, who trains with Droitwich Spa's fencing club, was in second place going into the elimination rounds, but fought hard to finish in first place. The RGS Grange Year 5 pupil, 10 years old, then went to King Edward VI School Stratford for the British Youth West Midland Sabre competition in the same age group. In his first Sabre event, after only starting using the weapon three months ago, Kington went into the elimination rounds in second again. But again, the Worcester youngster shone to bring home another gold medal. His mother, Alison, said he was stunned but thrilled with the result. Cricket now as the new season dawns, albeit somewhat damply. And the headline is Moeen back for test return. Worcestershire head coach Kevin Sharp has backed Moeen Alley to bounce back from a challenging winter and regain his test spot. Moeen made his 50th test appearance in just four years in the opening clash of the current series with New Zealand, but was dropped for the second test in Christchurch. Sharp joined the coaching staff at Blackfinch New Road just before Marion made his breakthrough with England in early 2014 in the West Indies, and there's no doubt he will come back strongly. He said, Marion has been superb for England during the past four years and made a big impact in all formats of the game. Often players go in and out of the side after making their first breakthrough at international level, but Moeen has been an ever-present. He missed just one test, and that was through injury, in getting to the 50 mark, and everyone at Worcestershire is so proud of what he has achieved. He has set a benchmark for everyone in the Worcestershire dressing room to try to achieve because playing for your country is the highest accolade. Knowing Mo, he'll do everything possible to try to reclaim his test place, and there is no doubt about his ability to be able to do that. It was only a few months ago that he was one of England's players of the summer against South Africa and could do no wrong. Meanwhile, Worcestershire suffered more weather frustration as their three-day first-class fixture with Leeds-Bradford MCCU was abandoned without a ball being bowled. Umpires Steve O'Shaughnessy and Paul Pollard decided conditions were unlikely to improve during the next 24 hours and called off the fixture on the second morning. Flag Meadow was already saturated after the recent downpours and more overnight rain left puddles strewn across the ground. It was Worcestershire's first complete washout of a first-class fixture since the county championship match with Kent at New Road in April 2016. Worcestershire have seen six successive days of scheduled action fall victim to the elements. After the two-day game with Somerset, Taunton was reduced to a one-day affair. The three days against Gloucestershire at Bristol were washed out. The county's players took to the grass nets at New Road on Sunday to keep ticking over in the build-up to the new campaign. An Academy second 11 two-day fixture is scheduled to take place at the Royal Grammar School Worcester tomorrow and on Thursday if conditions improve. Brett D'Oliveira has rejoined his Worcestershire teammates after a successful three weeks playing for the North versus the South and then the MCC against champion County Essex in the Caribbean. Now a short article about football, but this time based in Hereford. Beadle celebrates 100th Hereford win. Pete Beadle won his 100th game as Hereford manager and his side now need five more wins to be crowned Southern League Premier Division champions. 
Lance Smith put Beadle's side on their way to a third successive league victory by heading home a Jimmy Oates cross at the far post against Royston Town. The Bulls probed but lacked the cutting edge to unlock their visitors at Edgar Street in front of 2,657 fans. That's very precise, isn't it? Just as it looked to be heading into a nervous ending, Rob Purdy made it 2-0 with just eight minutes remaining after Smith capitalised on a defensive mistake before picking out his teammate. It was a very efficient performance and we never really looked troubled in open play. Their main threat was from their set pieces and we coped with that superbly, said Beadle. If I had any gripe with the boys, it was with the amount of possession we had in the final third. We didn't create as many chances. It wasn't quite fluent, creative or purposeful enough if I was being really picky. Royston are a good side, well-drilled, organised, and they were in with a chance of the playoffs until a few games ago. It was going to be tough, but the boys played with purpose and confidence. But in the final third, we lacked that cutting edge. We need to work harder on creating a few more chances. The win was Beadle's 100th as Hereford manager, including his brief period with Hereford United and his current reign as Hereford FC boss. The record includes the previous eight games under the old banner and is a nice landmark, but two different football clubs, added Beadle. It's a nice one to reach with 14 defeats and five of them were from the eight in the conference team. It would be much nicer if there is a third championship in there as well and that's what we're aiming for. Hereford head to mid-table Redditch United in the league today 3pm. The Reds lost 2-0 at Chesham United on Saturday. Well I said there wasn't very much sport that does conclude what was available so we will move on to our selections from the Radio Times and what we think might be quite interesting to listen to. So, actually, it's back to you, Evelyn, as you've got Saturdays, if you'd like to kick off. Right. Well, first of all, music. This is BBC Radio 3, 12.15pm, Music Matters. Is it music's job to confront or relax? Tom Service talks to composer Philip Venables about how he uses music to make political and social statements and about his new project, The Gender Agenda, which will turn London's Queen Elizabeth Hall and the London Sinfonietta into a giant, irreverent game show exploring the idea of gender equality or inequality. At the other end of the scale, he looks at music's gentler side with a new book, Mindfulness in Music, which explores meditation and music. And then my second choice is some drama. That's for Saturday 7th of April. Um, and it's 7.15 in the evening, Saturday Review. Tom Sutcliffe is joined by Jessica Burton, John Mullen and Sarah Crompton to discuss Corey Finley's film Thoroughbreds, a black comedy thriller, William Congreve's play The Way of the World at the Donmire Warehouse, London, In My Shoes, an exhibition at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, exploring how UK artists have represented themselves over the past 30 years, and The Overstory, a new novel by Richard Powers.
So my selections for Sunday the 8th of April. Uh, one, if you're up early enough, is on BBC Radio 4 at 10 past 8 in the morning. It's actually Sunday worship, but this service is a special one. It's coming from Westminster Abbey, and it's giving thanks for the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 50 years on from his assassin sorry his assassination in Memphis it's led by the very reverend Dr John Hall dean of Westminster and then at the other end of the scale on BBC Radio 5 live i know i'll probably be watching this on television not voluntarily it's live golf the final of the masters uh, mark chapman presents live coverage of the climax of the masters from augusta national golf club in georgia just in case there are any golf enthusiasts out there <laughs> right moving on to monday the let me have a look at the date monday the 9th of april um a couple of things i'd like to recommend one is the 15 minute drama on radio 4 this is on at 10:45 in the morning um uh, but it's repeated at 7:45 in the evening so it's a 15 minute drama and it's um about uh it's the ninth series of sheila stevenson's poignant comedy drama about a sincere and caring psychotherapist with extremely frustrating clients this week um the client who comes along twice in fact during the week is roger fallon mp played by roger allam um, we witness his desperate desire to improve his public presence by appearing on Strictly Come Dancing. Ed Balls and Anne Widdicombe did it, so surely it's his turn now. So that would be rather funny to listen to, I suspect. Um, the other thing I'd like to recommend for Monday is it uh, takes us back to um, the anniversary uh, concerning Martin Luther King, in fact. It's a concert on Radio 3 at 7.30 in the evening, um, and it's Europe's first black and minority ethnic orchestra playing at the Queen Elizabeth Hall on London's South Bank um, primarily to mark the hall's reopening following its two and a half year renovation um, but what's so interesting is I think the orchestra has commissioned a new piece for this evening which sets words by Martin Luther King and is being performed 50 years to the day since King's funeral in 1968 we're on to Tuesday now. I've picked two programmes, both of which have a fairly serious theme to them, but I do enjoy a serious radio programme. The first one is on the World Service. It's on at five past three in the afternoon, and then again at five past eight in the afternoon, and it's called The Town Trying to Cure Loneliness. The town turns out to be Froome in Somerset, and it's an idea launched by a GP called Helen Kingston. The idea was simple, it says here, a team that included the town council, NHS group health connections, Mendip and her own surgery encouraged people to talk about the problems they faced and found ways for them to re-engage with family, friends or social clubs. And the results have been difficult to ignore. Over the course of a three-year study, the number of emergency hospital admissions in Froome fell by 17% while they rose by 29% across the rest of the county. Can, it asks, community kindness and care succeed where drugs and medical procedures have failed? Anything political takes my notice. And there's a programme called Word of Mouth on Radio 4. This is Tuesday, remember, at 4pm, um, chaired by Michael Rosen. 
The series begins by tackling an issue that has a real sense of urgency about it, political discussion in an age of polarised politics. Prompted by the fear that we're living through a crisis of language in public debate, Rosen and guests, including Maria Warner, ask how it is that the same words can carry profoundly different meanings for different people, and why the torrent of words unleashed by online communication doesn't seem to have led to a greater understanding. broadcast this is on the 11th of april a wednesday and it's 12:04 in the middle of the day and it's in a series called home front this one is the 11th of april 1918 alice mcnade and it's written by lucy catherine on this day a hundred years ago the archbishop of canterbury expresses his concerns about the moral well-being of british troops in Folkestone, Alice receives a letter from France. So if you've been watching or listening to that particular series, well, this is number 28 in a series of 40. Gosh. For radio broadcast, this is on the 11th of April, a Wednesday, and it's 12.04 in the middle of the day, and it's in a series called Home Front, this one is the 11th of April, 1918, Alice McNade, and it's written by Lucy Catherine. On this day, a hundred years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury expresses his concerns about the moral well-being of British troops. In Folkestone, Alice receives a letter from France. So if you've been watching or listening to that particular series, well, this is number 28 in a series of 40. Gosh. You have to be very, um, what's the word? Devoted. Thank you, yes. <laughs> I'm going to recommend a programme for Thursday, the 12th of April. It's on the BBC World Service at 11.30 in the morning and also repeated at 10.30 in the evening. It's called The Food Chain and it's an investigation on the science, psychology and sociology of picky eating visiting a workshop where parents are taught how to encourage their children to eat their food. And I liked the idea, a survey was done um, by goodtoknow.co.uk that revealed that Britain's most hated food was oysters, followed by liver, anchovies, toffee, black pudding. But Brussels sprouts didn't get a mention. That's quite surprising. (laughs) Well, that concludes our radio choices. Uh, We hope you like our selection. We will now read the obituaries for the last week, and if, Philip, you could start us off, that would be great. I will do that, Pippa. Isabella Ballard passed away at Redhill Care Home March 20th, 2018. The memorial service will be in the Church of St. Martin in St. Peter on April the 6th at 12. Brian Butterworth passed away March 5th, 2018, Funeral service was at Worcester Crematorium on, well, today, Thursday, April 5th at 1pm. Norman Dunkley died in his sleep on February 28th, 2018. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium Chapel on Friday, April 6th. Richard Fogarty passed away peacefully on Sunday, March the 11th, 2018. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, April the 11th at 1.45. 
Patricia Hall of Northwick died peacefully on March the 9th, 2018. The funeral service will be at Worcester Crematorium Monday, April the 9th at 10.45. Richard Mosley died on the 4th of March 2018 and the funeral will take place at Worcester Crematorium on April the 9th at 12.15. Anne Plester of Barbourne died peacefully on March the 7th 2018 and the funeral service will be at St Stephen's Church Barbourne on Friday April the 13th at 12 noon. Stella Price, née Nash, um, died aged 105 years at Northwick Grange Care Home on March the 7th. The funeral service was at St Ken Elms Church on Wednesday April the 4th. And Thelma Smith passed away peacefully on March the 2nd, 2018. The funeral was held on Tuesday, April the 3rd at Lower Broadheath Church. Sidney Stephen, or Sid Wheatley, passed away peacefully with his family by his side on March the 7th, 2018, aged 96 years. Funeral service at St Andrew's Church, Ombersley, on Friday, April the 6th at 10am, followed by interment at the churchyard. Madeline Joy Cleesby suddenly but peacefully passed away at Regent House on March the 24th, 2018. The service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, April the 26th at 3.15pm. Ian Morris Haynes of Malvern, formerly of Cornwall and Worcester, passed away suddenly at Worcestershire Royal Hospital on March the 11th, 2018, aged 76 years. The funeral will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, April the 20th at 11.30am. And Ivy Muriel Matthews of Worcester passed away peacefully at home with her family by her side on March the 7th, 2018, aged 94 years. Her funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, April the 3rd at 10 a.m. John Stokes passed away peacefully on March the 15th, aged 73. Services at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, April the 10th at 9.15 a.m. Norman Chivers passed away peacefully at home on March the 8th. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on April the 12th at 3.15pm. Christopher Paul Drew passed away at Worcestershire Royal Hospital on March the 10th. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, April the 10th at 10.45am. Ivor Ricketts passed away peacefully at home on March the 11th, aged 91. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, April the 16th at 2.30pm. Norman Morris Dunkley died peacefully on February the 28th, 2018. The funeral will be at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, April the 6th at 1pm. Joan Margaret Edmonds, formerly Kings, peacefully passed away on March the 3rd, 2018. The, service, um, the funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, April the 13th at 1.45pm. Molly 
Mary, who is also known as Molly Ings, passed away peacefully in Carmarthen on March the 27th, 2018. She was a former teacher in the Worcester area and further inquiries about the funeral should be made to Glanmore D. Evans and Son, Carmarthen. Telephone 01267 241 Ray Le died on March the 13th, 2018, and the funeral will be on Wednesday, April the 11th at 10 a.m. at Worcester Crematorium. Joan McGill passed away peacefully at home on Friday, March the 9th, 2018, and the funeral will be at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, April the 11th at 12.15. So that concludes the obituaries. And if Catherine would like to read for us the thought for the week, that would be wonderful. Yes. Um, this week's thought for, the, for, thought for the week comes from John 19, verses 41 to 42. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Thank you for that. So finally, I would like to wish two of our listeners a very happy birthday. Kate Hudman is celebrating her birthday on the 9th of April and James Bowden on the 12th of April. So many happy returns to the two of you for this coming week. And that concludes the um, talking newspapers for Thursday, April the 5th. I'd like to thank everyone tonight for the production. So it's a goodbye from Duncan in the engine recording studio. He's waving goodbye. And from all our team members, so they would like to say goodbye. Uh, it's goodbye from me, Catherine. And goodbye from me, Phil. Goodbye, everybody, from Evelyn. And goodbye from me, Pippa. And I'd just like to say that I hope you all had a very happy Easter weekend. See you in a month. <laughs>